Hello everyone, welcome to episode 147. Wow, yeah, 147 of the In Squash podcast. And today we've got a fantastic episode with the uh, events uh, director of the PSA, Tim Garner. Really uh, enjoyed chatting with Tim today. He's had uh, an incredible ride here in the squash world uh, as a player, reached the top 30 in the world, got as high as 26, and then uh, took his entrepreneurship uh, ideas into the squash world. I think he started the British Squash Squash Professionals Association uh, with several other players and uh, took that uh, to some success. And uh, now, obviously, he's the events uh, director with the PSA and also events uh, tournament director for uh, Canary Wharf. Uh, he runs that event every year uh, along with Alan Thatcher. And we have a really interesting chat. We look back at his career, his playing days, uh, how it all got started for him and uh, his connection with Peter Nickel and Neil Harvey and how that turned things around for him a little bit. Uh, he's a really fit guy. He's 50 right now, and uh, I, I believe he's 50. And, uh, man, he looks uh, looks incredibly fit. I mean, I thought I was fit, but, uh, you know, we don't have uh, video on this podcast, but uh, he certainly looked like he was uh, he was in shape. So, uh, Tim, uh, you know, staying healthy uh, outside of his playing days. But, yes, we take a look at, uh, you know, uh, how things uh, played out for him professionally, particularly after he uh, met after he met with Peter Nickel they became close friends and Peter invited him to uh, work with uh, with Neil Harvey and Neil took him on and uh, the rest was history for him he really enjoyed that period of his squash playing days and then uh, things took off for him uh, on the business side of his squash career so we talk about all of that as well obviously uh, the elephant in the room uh, the COVID situation and how the PSA is uh, planning what they're planning going forward here. September, October is what we hear, but we uh, we don't know. And Tim talks a bit about uh, a fair bit about that. We tried uh, to sort of flesh that out a bit on the podcast. Now, uh, before we get started with the episode, though, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Active Scout. Okay, now it's launched. It launched on June first, and Active Scout is a growth and retention tool for squash clubs. Now the clubs are slowly looking to open their doors, which is happening right now. My club is hopefully going to open its doors uh, next week, we hope. We, uh, Active Scout wants to help your community grow. Not all members are returning from this break. So growing club membership is more important than ever before. Some are a bit apprehensive about returning at the moment. So start with you and a few of your regular playing partners. Active Scout can be your chat tool for arranging games or going for a jog. Post updates about your club on the social platform and check out what other clubs are doing to get up and running faster. So that'll be interesting, especially during these times. Check out what other clubs are doing and how they're uh, managing things and maybe uh, take a page from their books and vice versa. So next step, let your club manager know about Active Scout. If your club still uses pen and paper as a booking system, this is an opportunity to upgrade for free. If your club already has a booking system, let us know what your system is and we'll and we will shortlist it for platform integration. Active Scout was designed by a level three coach to help grow our sport, so reach out to us today. Active Scout is now beta testing. Contact Rob at ActiveScout.com and we will send you a link to download the app. The email is just like the website, Rob at ActiveScout.com. That's Active Scout without the E. And we are now ready to go. Episode 147. Really enjoyed chatting with Tim Garner. All right. Well, Tim, uh, appreciate you coming on. I know it's. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, and PSAs. Um, you know, you're with the PSA now. I think. Um, yeah, I work as a uh, consultant events director for the PSA. Right on. Oh, consultant events uh, for for the PSA. What what is your role again, sir? Yeah, so I'm the events director, um, but it's okay. a consistent basis. I'm not actually employed by PSA. I'm employed as a, uh, the events director. I see. Okay. But you, I mean, you tend to show up at events and just do just about anything, though, right? That, that's uh, yeah, kind of I'll, I'll pretty much do whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah, whatever it takes. Cool. But, uh, you know, before we get to, we dive into uh, the, the podcast, I just want to know uh, uh, how things are going for you and, and your family. Uh, Everyone okay there uh, on your end, and, and given the, the situation that we're going through right now. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a, you know, it's a strange time for everybody, but um, it's, you know, you have to just roll with it and d deal with it as best as you can. Um, it would be great to be playing squash. Um, that's the biggest thing that I think I miss. Um, yeah. But it's been nice to have some time. It's been nice to see a lot of London. I've cycled a lot during the break, during the lockdown. So I've got to see a lot of London that um, I probably didn't know where things were quite as well as I do now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so you're still playing a little bit, are you? These days? Yeah, I love playing. Yeah, yeah. I still yeah. during during the sort of the, the season, I try and play probably around three times a week, maybe four, um, yeah. and a, a little less in the summer. I tend to try and play a bit more golf in the summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm, I'm into the golf right now. Um, but I, I'm I'm like you. I'm going to play two, well, three three times a week when when the courts open again. Uh, yeah. It was all put back during the day. Obviously, it was more than that. But uh, you must be keeping fit as well. I mean, you look you look fairly. Uh, you, know, you look fit. That was that was one one of your strengths, I guess. Back in the day, was was, was your fitness and your, and your ability to uh, you know to stay out there on court and uh, you know hang tough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've always enjoyed exercise. Um, it's definitely what keeps me sane. So um, yeah. I've worked out probably more in this lockdown uh, than I have since I retired being a professional squash player, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me too. I mean, uh, I got out there and I think I bit off a little bit too much. Like I was running like my, some of my best 5k times in 15 years. And then uh, two or three weeks later, I'm limping around with a hip injury. Right. Because of, yeah. Running, <laughs> running, running can be pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you, uh, trying to stay fit, trying to uh, you know get ready to hit the ground running when we can get back on court. Uh, now you're, uh, as I mentioned, um, re referred to by many as the behind the scenes guy. Uh, we can get in uh, for the PSA. We can get into that a little bit later. But uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a, a, just a little bit of a look back uh, at uh, your squash history, your squash story. Um, now uh, I did find out that um, one of your goals as a player when you were younger was uh, to reach uh, number 28 in England. That's very true. Yeah, England, my, uh, yeah number 28 in England. Now, what, what, uh, what's that all about? Um, when I started playing squash when I was 12, um, I was given um, four lessons, I think, for my 13th birthday uh, with a guy called Grant Miller, who was the squash pro at the local club Lingfield, where I, I started playing. Um, yeah. He was a, a touring pro on the circuit, international circuit, a little bit, played tournaments, and he had an English ranking of 29. Um, and I thought, if I, you know, I used to look up to him a lot, and I always thought, wow, it'd be pretty amazing if I could get to a ranking that was slightly better than Grant. So that was my target, was to see if I could get to 28 in England. Right on. And uh, when did you, uh, sir? When did you uh, get to twenty-eight? And uh, you must have reached uh, at least like top five, top five in England uh, at one yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I I went to Loughborough University, um, and then probably I nipped past the twenty-eight mark at the end, probably age twenty-one, twenty-two, just after I left university. Okay. So you were playing a bit in in uni, were you? Uh, I guess yeah. it's not, not like not like uh, the varsity squash uh, in the U.S. Uh, the way it is in England, but there there's still a fairly sort of decent varsity uh, squash scene there. I guess guys like Daryl Selby, even the, the Shore Baggies may have even played. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's, it's moved forward in the U.K. a lot. I mean when I went, um, I think I was looking at a number of different universities to go to. I knew I wanted to play some squash. Um, Nottingham had some very good players that were based at Nottingham University. Um, there weren't too many others. Um, Loughborough had some decent players, but had a very good um, sort of reputation as a sporting university. Okay. Um, so that was kind of one of the main reasons why I wanted to go to Loughborough um, and sort of ended up there. Right on. And uh, did you play uh, play for their school uh, in a, like a varsity system kind of thing? or? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we played in the universities. Unfortunately, we never won the, the um, inter-college um, competition. Nottingham had three very good players. Um, who did they have? Uh, they had a guy called Andrew Foley, um, Mark Baker, um, and Phil Yarrow, who I think is over in the States somewhere. Um, but okay. um, they were very dominant. They also had some very good other players like, a little lower down, but that, that, that top three was pretty dominant. Um, 
And unfortunately, I hadn't improved quite enough to beat Andrew Foley. I had one very brutal match with him, which was the decider. And I think I lost 3-1 in about an hour and 40 minutes and, and literally oh, had to tear it off court with cramp. Um, <laughs> yeah. That sadly didn't get it over the line, uh, which was yeah. disappointing. Um, but, you know, the, you know it was, these things happen. Yeah, those cramping up, uh, I, I've had a few of those, uh, I mean, in my limited playing uh, career, and, and the cramping up situations are not, uh, not fun. No, it's not fun at, at all. And, and you can sort of sense it coming. You start to get a little yeah. flicker in your muscles and you know you're in trouble. And if you're not very close to the finishing line, you know you're in big trouble. Yeah, I used to cramp uh, where I used to always. Uh, now it, doesn't, it hasn't been as bad the last 15 years or so, but I was cramped up in the calves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a calf. Uh, I don't know why, but maybe, maybe that was an area I neglected. I didn't really uh, spend a lot of time. I should have been doing more skipping or something, maybe, back, yeah. in, back in the day. But uh, now, uh, you did turn pro, and you had, I think you at least uh, reached top top 30 in the world uh, as, as a professional. Uh, and during that time, uh, uh, I think you became quite good friends with, uh, with Peter Nickel. Uh, so... Uh, could you tell us, uh, uh, if you don't mind, uh, how that uh, friendship sort of uh, came about and uh, during a period in, in your professional career, maybe when you were kind of fledgling a little bit, and then uh, how that impact, how he uh, sort of impacted you uh, as a player on the Pro Tour? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'd come across Peter um, a couple of times in league matches, we hadn't actually played. I think he'd play, he was playing number one for Cannons and I was playing for my, my home club, Lingfield, who joined the, the National League and I think I was playing for them. Or, um, and I'd, so I'd seen him a couple of times. And then I turned up for a tournament in France and in, I think it was in Tours. Um, and I, I was in the qualification. I had sort of provisionally arranged the hotel but hadn't really made any plans got to the hotel reception, was trying to sort of room out. Um, and as I was doing it, somebody else was doing the same thing next to me. And, I, and then we were both kind of trying to sort a single room. And then we were like, oh, actually, do you want to share? And I, I was like, uh, and Peter said, yeah, sure. And I, so then we ended up sharing the room that week um, and got on well. We both managed to qualify, which was a good sign. He got through and I think he played Chris Dittmar in the first round and I played Ooh. Ross Norman, um, okay. which was the which was the end of both of our uh, tournaments um, (laughs) fairly quickly. What year Um, was that, uh, Tim? That would have been in about 93, I think, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then we became friends and I used to travel up. I I was living at home in Lingfield, but I I would travel up to London and um, to Connaught Club where Neil Harvey was based with a group of players and Peter was there and I'd go there and train with them. Um, and enjoyed the sessions and then one day Peter said look you know you, you keep coming up why don't if I was to buy a flat would you move in um, and knowing Peter pretty well I was fairly confident I had six to eight months um, before it would actually happen um, so I said yeah sure and about a week later he phoned up and said I bought the flat when are you coming um, so, uh, that was it. I moved up to uh, I moved up to uh, London and to Chingford um, and, and trained at the Connaught Club with Peter and Neil and it, it was fantastic. I mean, we had a great group of players there at the time, as well as Peter, um, Julian Wellings, Peter Genova, Ian Higgins, Stuart Cowie, Ong He, Frederico Usandizaga from Argentina. Um, lots of different players used to come in and out, but one of the best things was training with Peter was he always put in a very, very good session when everyone on court there was never a lazy session, so you yeah. couldn't go on. If you if you went on court and did boast and drive, you knew you had to get back to the tee and you had to do it properly because otherwise it would feel like you were being really lazy and you just weren't doing it properly. He was always very, very good at doing a very good session every single time he stepped onto the court, and that was a great thing to sort of educate all of us. That's how you train. Yeah, that's how champions are, are made there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, through through Peter, as you mentioned, you you uh, and just talked about that. You you established a relationship with Neil Harvey, who happened to be uh, my first episode on the podcast. By the way, um, Neil had, as we all know, he has uh, expectations of, of his players that maybe some may not want to uh, sort of live by. I, I guess. But uh, he, I think, I think uh, you managed to fit in quite well there. So, what was it about your sort of mentality and your your skill set that that appealed to Neil? And then uh, also, we know that 
uh, Neil's had success with the, with a lot of players. Uh, what what successes uh, did he bring to your game uh, uh, while you were working with him? Um, I mean, I think he was. He you could tell he really cared about trying to make you a better player and, and you know and a better person. Um, mm. He's, he really cared about us. He was very, he was tough. Um, yeah. And if you weren't able to cope with it, then you didn't cope with it. But the reality is if you probably weren't able to cope with what he expected, you were going to struggle when you went away to tournaments and you had to deal with things yourself and, you know, and become a better squash player often on your own. It was, you know, it was very rare in those days for coaches to travel with players. You really just looked after yourself or you had a friend. I mean, I was fortunate. I had a friend who was, you know, destined to be world number one who was in my corner, um, yeah. but you didn't have that all the time. Um, so you had to become very self-sufficient and able to deal with situations. And, and Neil made it tough, but, you know, I like that. I, I knew that if I put in the work that he was expecting us to do, I would improve as a squash player. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I had uh, Lawrence Anjuma uh, on, and he, he was talking, obviously, you, you know, that he worked with, he was there with you probably. At yeah, the he was, yeah. Yeah, and he told a fantastic uh, anecdote. He said, uh, I guess shortly, uh, and he had just come from uh, Poland, actually. I guess it may have been his first time away. And he said uh, you know, he was a bit homesick. He was kind of, maybe he was late for practice or did something, and uh, you know, Neil had a word with him. And uh, I guess Lauren said, um, you know, I'm not sure if I can do this. Uh, you know, I'm homesick. And, this. and then Neil, I think Neil said, grow up and then left. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came back and uh, and he said that from that point on it was uh, you know it was full steam ahead for for Lauren. Um, it's that yeah. that that kind of uh, sort of a tough love, I guess, is what what he brought to the table and along along with a real sort of a knowledge of the game and how to make players uh, reach their potential. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it, you know it was tough. It was but it was very structured. Um, it brought a group of players together. We had a lot of people who we could then train with and different styles of play to play against. And it was just a very good environment to, to, to grow as a squash player. Um, and I think the secret then was also to use what he gave you and, and then try and start to adapt your own game a little bit with your own personality. And, you know, I think that's what Peter did very well towards the end of his career almost. He really used the framework and the, the groundwork that he'd put in with Neil to become a very, very good squash player that, you know, it was, it was frustrating sometimes when he was described as everything was all about how fit he was and what he did. They, people yeah. didn't quite understand what a great squash player he was in terms of Absolutely. understanding yeah. the game and putting the ball in the right place. Yeah. Well, he was so good at, you know, lifting the ball and then he was so good yeah. in, in the front and he developed a really good front court offensive game. Uh, yeah. Sort of just right around, right around the time when the rivalry with JP was taken off. He added that and that really sort of, uh, maybe tipped it slightly in his, his favor there yeah. at, at a certain point. But uh, for you, uh, Tim, uh, looking back at just a little bit at, at, at your career, what were the highlights for you uh, in term, uh, as a player and uh, maybe some of the mem one, one of the memorable uh, matches or wins that you had uh, during your time on the tour? Um, I mean, any time you win a tournament, that's very memorable. The first yeah. one I won was the Burn Open, $3,000 event. Um, there you go. That was, uh, yeah, that was, that's, that's a special occurrence. Um, probably the highlight for me on the, on the, on sort of on the world tour was, um, getting through the draw in Egypt to play by the pyramids. Um, there's a little wow. bit of a backstory to it. I basically going into that event. Um, it was, I think it was either the first or second time it had been on. I was in qualifying. Um, I managed to get through the qualification draw, um, and I, had, I, was play, I, play, I was playing Alex Goff, who was obviously the CEO of PSA these days. Um, yeah. the yeah, good, very, very good time. player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, current world number five at that time. Um, and um, fortunately, I managed to, to get the win and get through, which gave me the opportunity to then play by the pyramids, um, which was just inc incredible. I and mean, obviously, I've been involved in the event in more recent years there. But in those days... It was relatively basic. There was a court on a concrete platform. There was a very large number of seating built around the court. And yeah. there was a couple of porter cabins that were out in the desert. And there was a bit of carpet. And you ran up and down on it. And you warmed up. And then you you would look at the court in the background and see a camel go past and just sort of be, <laughs> yeah. oh, this yeah. is just incredible. This, you know, this is just 
so surreal. Um, but it, that was yeah. just fantastic to get a chance to play on that court by the pyramids was was just what absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah. No, I remember. I mean, back then, the Egypt, the, the Egyptian dominance hadn't really taken effect. Uh, were there a lot? Uh, there were some very good Egyptian players, obviously, but uh, com- compare then to to now in terms of uh, the number of people, the the enthusiasm of the game in Egypt. Was it the same, or or do you think it's even more uh, more so now than it was uh, back during that it, time? I, th- I think it's changed a lot. I think the 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 they're, they're a lot more educated now. I would say in terms of squash back when we were playing that event, it was all about Ahmed Barada and trying to get him to world number one. And he was, you know, the other players were great players who were there, but he was the standout star in Egypt. Everybody knew him. Taxi drivers knew him. Everybody knew him. Um, And they were fanatical about him winning without, with very little knowledge of the game. They would come to watch, but have no idea really what was going on. And just cheer as long as he won the rally, they would cheer. And if he didn't win the rally, then it would be dead silence. Um, yeah. Nowadays, they're still as enthusiastic and excited about the sport, but there's a much better understanding of what player, the good players do to win rallies. And yeah, uh, and I guess it does help too when you've got so many Egyptians playing each other. They they kind of have to look for the fairness in there in order to uh, identify, you know, make you know make sure it's transparent uh, within being such a parochial uh, yep. event on, on, on the court there with the, within the Egyptian uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So now you, uh, you I'm not sure if you retired or you semi-retired, but uh, you went from, uh, from playing squash to uh, the business side of squash. Uh, started, I think, an events management, management company and then also the, the British Squash Players Association. I think you got you and a few of your friends uh, launched that uh, initiative as well. So what, uh, over the years, I guess you must have somewhere along the way, the seed was planted to get sort of involved in, in the business side of things. And, and obviously now you still are. So how, how did that uh, all come about for you? Uh, the um, I, was always, I was always interested in organizing events. I mean, even at the, the Lingfield Squash Club where I grew up playing, I was, even when I was 15, 16, I was kind of organizing the handicap tournament or um, running a few little small events there. And then when I went to university, I became the sports secretary of the hall of residence I was staying in. And we had actually a pretty organized uh, plan. We were a very small hall, but a plan to try and win the inter-hall competition. I think we had 250, 300 people in our hall of residence and the biggest one had 1,500. So they had a lot more people and they they always won it. But we had a pretty structured approach with practices and everything else. Um, And and we got very close. It actually came down to, I think it came down to the 4 by 400 meter relay at the athletics event, which was the final event of the season, which unfortunately they won, we didn't. And that meant they won the overall competition. But it was a a great thing to be part of because they'd never been challenged really by anybody. Um, So I I loved events. I knew I always enjoyed events. And then... Even while I was playing, I was always sort of involved a little bit. Like, like I said, we set up the BSPA, myself, Neil Harvey, and a number of other, Tony Hands, Chris Walker, Paul Carter, a few other um, players um, of that time. Um, and we had, the, we had a sort of little mini circuit of events. I was less involved in the actual isn't that, event. Isn't that still going on? Uh, there, there's still, I mean, I see uh, some at like the Boston Open. Is that uh, Yeah, some of the events are certainly still going. Um, we, I sort of stopped running it through the BSBA a couple of years ago because kind of PSA's moved on so much in terms of being able to support the type of events that we were trying to put on. Right. Um, that it was almost, that didn't need to be the middleman that was the BSBA effectively. You know, the Boston Open will survive as a standalone tournament with the number of players we have in the UK and with, yeah. it, with the knowledge they have, any new events are likely to come on are going to become a 5k PSA tournament, I would say. So there sort of wasn't the need for it. And, you know, it'd run its course basically. Um, but that was, that was kind of how I sort of got into the events. And then when I was playing, I was uh, friends with Angus Kirkland, um, who also played on the tour and then yeah. moved to the U S when he retired to coach at the, the Harvard club in Boston. And I was friends with Peter and we were talking about events and I was kind of talking about the events with the two of them independently 
but we were all sort of friends. Um, so then we, we had a sit down. I think we, I think I remember, I think we sat down in a cafe in Chingford um, and sort of had a talk about, Oh, maybe we should try and do something together. Um, Angus had just uh, set up uh, Vensi sports marketing to have, uh, you know, an entity to run events through and he was doing an MBA at Cranfield university. Okay. And one of the projects was, looking at a glass court event in a shopping center in Milton Keynes or somewhere. And I was like, Oh, that sounds really exciting. Maybe we could look at Milton Keynes. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Because I play golf. Uh, this is a side story. Okay. I'm very off on the tangent here, but uh, maybe you can answer me this. I play uh, threesome every weekend with these guys, uh, guys from, from the UK. I mean, I'm in the UAE. Mm-hmm. I think you might know that. Yep. Um, anyways, one of my buddies, make, he's always cracking jokes about Milton Keynes. Uh, I'm not sure why. Is there a reason for it? I have no. I haven't really uh, deciphered why why he does, but uh, keep well, saying uh, you're from Milton Keynes, and, and um, my my buddy doesn't appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I have to uh, be. A, well, I'll be a little bit careful. It's it's a new town. Um, <laughs> there aren't too, there aren't too many new towns in the UK, uh, okay. but it's, it's a new town, so it doesn't have a lot of history, and then it's also it, that may not be his reasoning, but they're also the only. Um, place in the UK that's effectively taken a, a football soccer team from somewhere else. So there was a, a, ah. a football team called Wimbledon that was was quite famous. Won the FA Cup, beat Liverpool in the final, yeah. and then effectively got allowed to be moved to Milton Keynes. Is now now known as the MK Dons, um, okay. and then AFC Wimbledon has kind of come as a, a phoenix from the flames from right at the bottom again all the way through the leagues and now sits in the same league as um, MK Dons. So that's obviously a massive rivalry, but um, so that's what Milton Keynes is really known for. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll bring that up uh, tomorrow when we meet. Yeah, he'll be, he'll be impressed with your knowledge. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, getting back to what, uh, what we were talking about there, Milton Keynes and the, um, and the B- uh, Bispa, I guess. Well, no, this was just for like a glass court squash event. Um, It wasn't really anything to do with the BSBA. Um, We were looking at just doing an event. And then Angus had also had um, some discussions or a thought that maybe you could put a glass court in the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield, which was um, where the World Championship snookers played every year. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's an he's seen an occasion where they normally only see the one table, but they lifted the barrier up and you could see that actually the theatre was potentially big enough to put a squash court in it. Um, so we contacted the theatre, managed to arrange a meeting. They were receptive to us putting an event on. Um, we managed to get Hilton on board as a hotel sponsor. We managed to get Prince on board to put some money in, and we sort of felt that there was we had a fighting chance of actually putting an event on. And that was our first, the English Open um, in two thousand and three, I think it was, was was our um, first sort of professional event. Um, yeah. Angus had some, Angus had fortunately had some experience from. Um, running the US Open with John Nimick at the Harvard Club in Boston so right. he had at least some practical knowledge of what happened because I was still definitely a little naive in terms of from the squash players point of view that you rock up at an event and everything's done and you're surprised the you just show up as a player and you, you, yeah, you, you expect everything to be yeah uh, yeah. yeah oh that's so, cool yeah. it was quite, quite eye opening <laughs> <laughs> but then you got involved uh, I think with, with Canary Wharf right and that, yeah, that was a, that, that was a big in, thing, and uh, you know, Alan Thatcher's done done a fantastic job with that. And uh, I mean, every year it just seems to get better and better. This year was amazing. What a great event it was uh, this year. So, uh, what does uh, what's that event mean to you now, given you know who you are and what what you do? Um, oh yeah, I mean, Canary Wharf's my baby. It really yeah. is. Um, I. Yeah, I mean, it was, we were looking to put an event on in Canary Wharf um, and we'd approached the then Reebok Sports Club um, about putting a glass court into their basketball hall. Um, They'd made a a little error when they opened as the biggest gym in Europe by not putting any squash courts into it. Because every other person who came through the door was going, where are your squash courts? And they were like, "Um, we don't have any. Um, (laughs) They were looking at ways that they could potentially promote squash by having a, a squash club, even though they didn't have any squash courts with a with a glass court event. And then off the back of that, we realised it wasn't really that practical. But we got talking to Canary Wharf about maybe we, we could put a glass court outside the Reebok Sports Club. And then they said, "Oh, well, we've got this new building that's in construction. It's going to be open in October. 
do you want to come and have a look at it? And we donned hard hats and boots and went and had a look at the East Winter yeah. Garden and were like, wow, this is incredible. This is just going to be stunning for a squash event. Um, and so we sort of made some developments with that. Um, discovered that other people were also talking to Canary Wharf about an event. Um, and so then we ended up partnering with Alan um, on the event to help it make it happen. Um, that very first year, uh, we had a, we had a sponsor in ISS facility services who agreed to put in some money. Um, I remember the conversation with Peter very clearly where we weren't getting as much money as we hoped and we were definitely going to have a deficit and we were going to have to take a leap of faith that it was going to work. And yeah. we, we were backwards and forwards quite a bit with each other about should we do it? You know, we really weren't sure. It was, it was a big gamble. Um, we couldn't really afford to lose a lot of money. Um, yeah. And we, in the end, we were like, you know what, if we don't do it, this could be something we'll always regret and we'll never know. So yeah. let's go for it. And um, fortunately, the rest is history and we're, you know, we're still going 17 years on. Yeah, amazing. Uh, yeah. The event's grown. That first year we had pretty good ticket sales and each year the ticket sales have sort of grown. And um, yeah, like I say, it is my, it is my baby. I've, I just love every little detail of it and I love tinkering with little bits of it and finding a, a way to maybe improve it even though it's been going for so long that maybe even only I'll know that I've done it and other pe people won't realize that it's changed slightly. Um, yeah. Well, it's but, definitely gone from strength to strength and uh, I mean... I think it's just, it's selling, it's such a great event now that it's sell, it's sell, probably. I mean, uh, all the players, every, everyone wants to play in it. It's got the unique, the, the, the unique uh, best of three uh, early round matches, which, which is, uh, I, I think it's great. Uh, yeah. and, and it's got to be, uh, uh, what, what's your take on that? And what, what, what's the feedback from the, the players and the spectators, the patrons for the event, uh, the best of uh, three format? Uh, I mean, I'm... Yeah, I was very keen to um, trial it at Canary Wharf. Um, I've always kind of felt in recent years that the sport needed a slightly shorter version of, of the great game that we've got. I don't think that best of three is the is the be, be all and end all as the final product, but I think it's a very, very important part of the game. Um, in the same way that 2020 cricket is a massive part of cricket, without it, test cricket would have died. With it, test cricket is now... As successful as ever. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that, that's the professional uh, cricket now, isn't it? Uh, what they're playing in uh, Dubai and in India that, on the pro, that, that sort of pro circuit that they have. They play these short. I, I don't know anything about cricket, but uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so short. 2020 cricket, uh, cricket can be played in an evening, basically. They, they don't. Uh, it doesn't take a week to play a match, right? No, and no. you end up <laughs> with the result. But that has attracted a whole new. Um, range of fans to the sport of cricket which um would definitely not sit down and watch five days of play to end up with a draw um so you need that and squash yeah the, the best of three really works in environments like canary wharf where you can play four matches in an evening we got to the point where um the, the, the evenings were stretching out so far um, that we were starting at five o'clock and we were running till par way past 11 with the best of fives with very little gaps in between. Yeah. And sadly, not everybody could make the five o'clock match. And most people had left by the, 11 by the last match on, you know, the players would go on for the last match and we could fit, we could fit absolutely everybody in the seating into the back wall seating. So there was at least less than one third of the spectators who were yeah. able to stay, and they didn't want to go. They were forced yeah, to. And I'm like, guessing that the, the marquee matchups were, were the last matches. Yeah, well, you try and you'd normally put them on as match two and three are normally the, the key matches because you know people may have to leave. Okay, um, so you factor that in. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but even so, now, this, these last three years, it's pretty packed from the first match and it's pretty packed in the last match. And that's great for the players. It's great for everybody who's bought a ticket. You want them to be able to stay and watch the whole, all of the squash. Well, it's great for tennis. They do that in tennis too. I think on most of the uh, the, the major events, that, not 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 the big major events, but the circuit that they have yeah, outside right. the major events are all best of threes until maybe the final. I, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's a good thing. What about the players? I mean, um, they to me, if I were a player, I, I I'd appreciate it because uh, then I'd have you know if I'm playing well, I'm winning. I'd, I'd have plenty left 
to to perform my best uh, in the latter rounds or in the final. Yeah, I mean, I think I think initially there was a, was definitely quite a lot of resistance um, because everybody thinks of it from their point of view generally. So if they think they're better at a best of five format, that's the one that they would prefer the game is played at. Um, yeah. So I think there was there was a fair amount of resistance, and I think that's there are still some people who don't agree with it. Um, but interestingly, they still play the events. Um, yeah. So so they don't agree with it because they think. Probably the, the longer the match goes, the more it favors him. Yeah, so that, that, that's just a different That's just a, a different skill set, though, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And and the best players in any sport are always the ones that adapt to whatever the um, parameters you give them or the, tr the the tests you give them. The best players will always come out on top. They just adapt to it better and they yeah. work out the way to play in that system. To be successful, um, and I think that I think what one of the things the players have realised is that by having some best of three tournaments in between, maybe some of the Platinum World Series events. So, for example, having Chicago, then Canary Wharf, and then Elguna, or something like that, they're able to play that event where previously they might have thought it's another tough event in the middle of yeah. three tough events. I'm not sure I could play it. Now I think they know. If they, you know, a couple of best of three matches, they'll be fine, and then two tough matches to finish. It's not going to hurt them for their next event after that. So it's enabling them to play more squash, hopefully extending their careers. Um, so I think mm. a lot of them are coming around to the fact that as long as they can see that the tour isn't going that way completely, I think they accept that it does have a part to play in the future of squash. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you, a lot of players uh, just had Carrick Moment on. He said he was suffering. Uh towards the end of last season, he had plantar fasciitis and managed to win the World Open regardless. But, uh, yep. uh, I mean, a lot of these guys end up getting injured uh, towards the end of the year and continue to play through. But if there were more uh, best of threes, uh, I mean, you might see less of that. Now, um, so you you went from from there. Obviously, you're, you're now working, uh, I guess, as a consultant with the PSA. Uh, your friend uh, Alex Goff, I guess, did did he uh, recruit you, or was that something that sort of uh, you just found your way? Uh... Um, I mean, it's it was been a bit, it was a little bit of a circuitous um, journey. I I also did some work for as a sort of caretaker tour director for the women's tour um, after Andrew Shelley left, um, right. yeah, and I sort of moved into looking after um, the. They asked me to do be the like the European tour rep for a little while when they were trying to find a way to sort of divide the the globe up and let have different people look after different regions. Um, I think Ritwick was looking after Asia, Kashif was looking after sort of Australasia. Um, they had different people in different zones, um, so I did a bit of work there. And then actually, it sort of came about from being asked to um, help out on the World Championships that were in Seattle. Um, okay who needed probably a little bit of um, assistance in terms of delivering such a major event because they hadn't actually run any major events in the lead up to it. They were straight in with the World Championship. So the, the guys, I think, felt that it would be useful to have someone like myself that had been involved in events helping them out to try and get like guide them through the process and make it be delivered as well as possible. Um, yeah. And that was that's really gonna make that's gonna make you feel good. I mean, to be to have that skill set and say, okay, we'll just you know Tim can handle that one there. Uh, we'll just send him over there and do to do this. I mean, you you obviously built that experience and that skill set over time to be able to pretty much handle it seems to me just about any uh, situation you put yourself in. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was nice. I mean, it, it was it was nice to do. I really enjoyed it, and I, like I've, like I said, I've always you, enjoyed. You were in P, you were in Dubai as well. I, I actually, uh, we we spoke. You you probably don't remember, but uh, Dubai Super uh, Super yeah. Series at Emirates Golf Club. Uh, yeah. You were there. Uh, you were running around like uh, <laughs> you, you were very busy at that. Uh, yeah, it tends to be tends to be the case. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I like I, I enjoy problem solving, so that. Yeah. Events tend to have a few little issues along the way, along the road. Um, yeah. So it was great. I did that one, and that, that was sort of a test event. And then, really, I you know I chatted to um, Alex, Tommy, and Lee off the back of that, and they realised that they were going to need more assistance with events moving forwards, and there were mm -hmm. going to be events that would come up that would require 
some help. So just sort of asked whether I would be interested in sort of doing that. And, um, you know, I, I was, I have a few other things that I'm involved in, hence the sort of the setup of it as a consultant rather than being an employee, because that gives me, I guess, and them a little bit more flexibility in terms of how things work, but, um, it works, it works really well so far. Brilliant. Now, uh, now that brings me to, uh, I guess, the, the nuts and, and the bolts of what I wanted to talk to you about, the million-dollar uh, question I guess everyone wants uh, the answer to. And you may be, you know, I don't want you to speak out of turn here, but, uh, you know, uh, is there, there going to be any squash uh, at the end of August? Um, I mean, I hope so. Um, yeah. We're, you know, we're always, we're, it's, it's a tricky world. Um for many reasons, obviously with coronavirus, but also the fact that everything's so different in in so many different places. Um, yeah. I did some stuff, uh, some work for the World Squash Federation to help try and pull a few things together. And one of the things was to try and produce some maps of what the situation is in different countries around the world. So yeah. that a people can kind of see what's happening in different places and to give the, the people who are in countries where there is no squash some hope that actually there is squash being played in other areas of the world. Um, but that, that makes it a challenge for a, a, you know, for a world tour to do something. You need enough events and enough players effectively for it to be a world tour. Um, and that's right. going to be the challenge that, you know, the guys will have in terms of how they phase back into, you know, a PSA world tour. Yeah. Um, I think the ability to deliver some squash events somewhere will happen in the August, September window. Yeah. I hope, um, you know, mm. it, it's impossible to say for sure because it's a, you know, it is a movable feast. There's things changing mm. all the time, yeah. but we, we've certainly been looking at how do we put things on at the moment in a few months time, given, you know, the current sort of parameters. Right. Well, you look at, I mean, obviously there, there are, uh, I wouldn't, yeah, mainstream sports out there that are about to come back or are, are currently, you know, uh, uh, putting on events. Uh, MMA is one. They uh, they just announced they 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 put this thing out there. They they had this thing called Fight Island, right? And mm -hmm. uh, that that turns out to be Yaz Island, which is here in the UAE. But this okay. uh, this uh, just sort of island where they, you know, I get I guess because travel restrictions here. Are, aren't, as, aren't as stringent and maybe you know they've got all the testing measures and things like that in place because they've already uh, they've held a series of events but uh, and other sports are also following suit but uh, is that something I guess, I guess you guys have talked about you know maybe identifying and you you alluded to it just now maybe three or four uh, possible areas where where you could put on events and then maybe uh, host more events there as opposed to maybe where they would normally take place. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, you know, we're we're like all sports. We're looking at the options for hosting behind closed doors events. Like you say, yeah. it's happening. Whether it's going back to cricket, there's a Test match series against the West Indies this summer in the UK, and they're using two grounds where the players can stay in the accommodation that's actually at the ground, so they can kind of keep keep it very isolated in that way. Um, obviously, the PGA Tour kicks off, I think, today with the yeah. Charles Bob event over there there's a plans for a uk tennis little circuit there's a lot of all the sports are trying to do it um, we're all desperate to get back to some semblance of our sports for mm. a for people to be able to watch them and b particularly for our athletes to be able to play and yeah. you know apply their trade effectively so well i just saw it was sean delier i don't know if you saw his little uh, video there for squash canada but he pretty much just said basically you know we want to get back out playing and uh, you know, a lot of players are suffering right now. And uh, uh, I guess, you know, for like you said, for the players, it's really going to be, you know, getting them back on court to, to resume their livelihood is uh, yep. something you've got to, uh, obviously, that, that's going to be one of the, the top priorities for, for you guys, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. We're keen to get them back in action and, you know, earning some money and doing, you know, what they, <laughs> doing their trade effectively. So, um, and then it'll be great because it'll, it will have a positive knock-on effect for the whole sport. I know yeah. people kind of, it's frustrating for me. People have, tend to view 
the situation very differently depending on their personalities and how they feel about it. I'm generally realistic about things, but I also am slightly optimistic and I like to try and see the positive and what you can do proactively to make things happen quicker. You know, I, we will right. be back playing squash. The humans are very well, there good. Are people, there are people around the world playing squash. I mean, I, I just yeah. saw it was in South Korea. It was the funniest thing. Uh, they had a big event there. They no one was wearing, they were just playing normal squash, but then they had a big group photo where everybody had a mask on. Right. <laughs> it was kind of strange, but, but they were all, uh, you know, everyone was just playing normal, normal squash. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what sort of rules they had in place, but uh, in terms of what they had to be doing when they were playing, I didn't, there were no live, there was no live feed or anything like that, but, uh, you know, getting back on court uh, obviously is uh, is critical for for these guys uh, sooner rather than later. But we, like you said, you have to uh, you know be careful with these things. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you need to put in the the right um, precautions and um, set it up as safely as possible. But I think the the perception of squash a little a little bit originally was like, oh, it's you know, it won't it won't be possible to do it because it's inside. You're sweating, and you know, and and there's a lot of things that aren't correct. You know, you don't transmit the coronavirus via sweat. Um, right. Well, I mean, that, that's why the, that's why the MMA, uh, or, I mean, those guys are, you know, touching each other and jumping, uh, jumping on each other. They just, I think they have, they've done their, they've done their research and they had the testing measures in place. Yeah. And they, um, I guess obviously they have a lot more money than, than squash does in order to be able to manage and facilitate all of that. But, uh, I guess that that would be uh, an interesting template to follow in terms of, you know, how how to best set up what you need to set up in order to get yeah. it off the ground. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to, you know, we're trying to look at what other sports are doing, and the, you know, in particular the sports that do have slightly more resources than than we do, so that they can sort of, um, you know, plow the line effectively, um, and then and we can see what works and what doesn't, and not spend our money on the stuff that doesn't work and you know, spend it on stuff that really is a, does have a positive impact. Yeah. No, I was thinking earlier, I mean, uh, like obviously the, these sports, there no, there's no one in the stands, there's no patrons uh, buying tickets, but you could, you know, obviously have a, like a pay-per-view or a, uh, you know, we have squash, uh, squash TV. Is that something you guys maybe considered or, or thinking about in terms of if you put on an event, get squash TV involved and, and sell tickets that way. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, if we put on events, they uh, 100% they'll be streamed um, yeah. through um, the streaming platform Squash TV. And um, I mean, I mean, squash, uh, there's a lot of free stuff. Sorry for interrupt. There's a lot of free stuff out, out there. Typically, right? You, you'll show you'll show plenty of events on Facebook every for free, and then it, I think it's like the semifinal onwards then. The, the person who has the paid uh, subscription to Squash TV can, can see that, but uh, maybe perhaps just uh, have a pay, you know, pay by pay by the round in or, un, until we uh, get through this period. Yeah, I mean that's what the you know um, the guys are looking at in terms of how to sort of set up the deals to. If we put on events, we need to fund them somehow. So there will be a way, you know, that, that that's part of the part of the pieces that you need to put together to make it work financially for everybody so that you can put on an event um, so that the players can earn some money um, but it doesn't cost the, the you know the tour or the association too much money um, I think that you know they'll be prepared to invest some money into making it happen but it's got to be a realistic number to, to really make it work right is there a, I mean in, in some way without having to without having to sell tickets and without having to cater to certain aspects of the game is there some cost savings as a result of that yeah for sure i mean on depending on the venue if you if if, if it was somewhere that you would have to build seating and hmm. um, have numerous other bits that were part of the event build then you definitely save those elements so that brings the costs down um and that's the sort of thing that you would factor in when you're looking at potential places to to put the event on yeah 100 percent now uh I know Squash Canada put out a press release uh, several, or maybe two months ago, and it was kind of scary in, in terms of, you know, is this how we're going to end up playing, uh, playing squash? Uh, uh, they, they, ended, they suggested two balls 
uh, obviously wearing a you know masks, which which is uh, feasible. I guess you could you could you could ask players to wear a mask. Uh, no hand wiping, uh, things like that. Uh, are those discussions uh, that you've had with with PSA in terms of what what to do when when you actually or how to how to get the game how to play the game under these circumstances? Um, yeah, I mean, we we look at all those things. I mean, we like I said, we we sort of work with the World Squash Federation to put together the, um, some guidelines in terms of phasing squash back into being played. Mm. Yeah, just in general, um, and some of those elements would be um, applicable to a, a tour event um, or a, or a you know professional event. And then there'll be other elements that you won't need to do if you've done testing. Then you can relax some of the elements that you, you know, might, might be required in certain places if, it were, if the testing hadn't been done. Um, so it, it's just a matter of trying to work out what works best for whether it's recreational play or whether it's for, pres- for, for professional play. Um, but like I say, people are very good at solving problems. You know, the world always has lots of problems. That's part of the challenge, and I'm sure we can do that. Um, and things are changing very rapidly all the time. If you look at some of the countries where they started out with fairly strict protocols in place along the lines of what you just mentioned in terms of Squash Canada, now, four or five weeks later, they're playing almost normal squash with maybe no hand wiping and you know having to clean your hands when you arrive at their venue and um, yeah. other little elements. Um, but the actual squash on the court is just is a normal squat game of squash. Right on. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, from the sounds of it, it sounds like, uh, you know, potentially by the end of August, maybe a little bit further down the road, as long as we don't have any more uh, hiccups along the way, uh, we could be seeing some, some PSA action in, our, in, in the future. Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, as I said, you know, we said we, we, we want to try and make it happen as soon as possible, but be realistic about being able to deliver something that's going to work. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, Tim, uh, really appreciate your time. I know you got to get back out on the bike and get, <laughs> get, get ready uh, for when we do hit the court again. I know I'm going to do, probably go do a, maybe a circuit or something right now. Uh, you, you look fit, so I want to get, uh, get fit. Uh, I am fit, but uh, not as fit as you, I don't think. You're, you're working at it, buddy. Keep it going. And, right. uh, and all the best with everything with the PSA. Really appreciate everything that you guys do uh, to put on this, uh, this great product that we've had over the last few years. I'm looking forward to getting back on court soon. Definitely. Great. Thanks, Jerry. Well, that's episode 147 in the books. Thanks so much again to uh, Tim Garner. And uh, everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, we're all over social uh, media, the In Squash podcast. We're on the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, please give us a like. Give us a shout out there. Uh, share this, uh, these episodes with your friends and in your squash community. Maybe you can even use uh, Active Scout to share, uh, to share your episodes that you like. Uh, we've got some good ones upcoming. Uh, looking forward to having uh, uh, sharing with you the Brian Patterson episode. Uh, he's uh, we're just fresh off the Bronx Tale, uh, the fantastic documentary on urban squash in New York, and uh, Brian Patterson came on. And man, what a great episode that turned out to be! Uh, lots of history there with him, and uh, I know you're going to enjoy that one. And we've got several other uh, good ones coming up as well. So stay tuned for those. Thanks, everyone. I hope you, uh, your squash uh, clubs are hopefully opening up soon if things are, are improving where you live. I uh, know next week, hopefully, uh, my club will open. We'll see how that all plays out, and I'll keep you uh, posted on that. So, anyways, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Take care, and have a great day. Goodbye now.